welcome to Queers & Co, the podcast on self-empowerment, body liberation and activism for queer folks and allies. I'm your host, Jem Kennedy. I'm a transformational coach as well as creator of the Queers & Co zine and community. Hey folks, welcome to another episode of Queers & Co. I don't know about you, but lockdown fatigue has really set in in the last week or so. Um, it gave me a lot of hope, actually, imagining people listening to this in, I don't know, like six months or a year and hopefully lockdown being a thing of the past or at least things being easier. So, um, yeah, if you're listening in the future, well done you. <laughs> For everyone who's listening now in February 2021, I hope you're all keeping safe and managing to look after yourself. I wonder if there's anything that you could do today that would help your day feel a little bit easier, maybe um, help you feel a little bit more supported. I'm really conscious of that at the moment because, as I said, lockdown in our household is really <laughs> becoming tiresome. Uh, the children just want to see their friends and we just want to be outside seeing all the people we love so it's feeling really frustrating. Luckily I have a really great guest for you today and it's someone that I spoke to back in December and I just oh it was so good <laughs> when I listened back just now when I was editing and uh, transcribing the episode I just had so many thoughts there are so many things that we touch on and I'm really hoping that she's going to come back and talk to us about some other things that will become clear as we go through the episode. I think you're going to really enjoy it and I'm sure that you'll get lots from what my guest has to share. One of the things I'm conscious of with the podcast is that I know lots of people who listen don't have children and I feel like there might be a tendency to switch off when there are sort of children's rights or unschooling specific podcasts or guests who are working in those fields but I really would encourage anyone to listen because not only do we talk about the ways in which we are with our children there's so much learning that comes from how we think about education ourselves and how we allow ourselves to discover knowledge and I think what my guests had to share around that was just really fascinating and I learned a lot. So without further ado let me introduce you to her. She is a mother, writer, home educator and breastfeeding counsellor originally from Trinidad and Tobago and now living in Cornwall. She also works with her family's small regenerative farm near Falmouth and hosts a podcast about human connection called Revillaging, which I'd highly recommend you have a listen to. Introducing my excellent guest, Adele Jarrett-Carr. Hi Adele, thanks so much for joining me. Uh, thanks for having me, Gem. I've been really looking forward to this conversation. Oh, me too. And we kind of already jumped in before we started recording. So we decided that we'd better start recording so we can um, capture what we're talking about. And really, we were talking about sound quality, but actually kind of the under or the subtext was like unschooling and queering things, I guess. Mm. Um, so it'll be really interesting if you're happy to just introduce yourself and um, how you identify in sort of various ways. Yeah, sure. Let's do it. Yeah. So my name is Adele Jarrett Carr. I am originally from Trinidad and Tobago and I live in the UK. I've lived here for 15 years. So I'd say that that is a huge part of my identity. Um, I'm an unschooler, unschooling parent of three kids who are nine, six and four. Um, and we have always done life without school, but have kind of transitioned more and more towards unschooling as I've learned more about uh, children's rights, but also a kind of decolonizing myself. That's been a, a huge part of our, our process. Um, we run a farm. I, um, I'm one, one a member of a, a team of four who run a, a farm here in Cornwall. It's a, it's a no-dig farm which uses regenerative practices, although I'm always a bit cautious of using that word because it is a word that comes from Indigenous and African cultures and we are trying to embody that in all ways, not just in the sense of, of the way that we do agricultural practices, but trying to get into the, the philosophy of that and living, living of that, living regeneratively. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, because it's become a bit of a whitewashed buzzword. So it's like a lot of things. And I'm sure we'll get onto that at some point. Uh, trying to think of what else I would really say. Yeah, I don't know. I think that probably covers a few things. Um, I have been working as a breastfeeding counsellor, well, volunteering as a breastfeeding counsellor for quite a significant portion of my life now, um, last almost 10 years. But I'm kind of taking a break from that. But I feel like that has actually informed a lot of the things that I, I do as well. So um, it, is mm. worth, it is worth sort of mentioning. Um, 
I'm sure if there's anything else, I probably can't be neatly packaged like most of the things about us and it'll probably emerge as we have the conversation rather than me saying, right, I'm I'm Adele and I'm this, this, this and this. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think it's, I think it's a really useful place to start. And there's so much already that I'm like, oh, I want to know about this. I want to know about this. Um, and our paths have crossed over the last year or so in different um, spaces, but not enough. Mm. So I'm really keen to find out more. So you came to the UK 15 years ago and like your journey to um, the children not ever going to school and also um, decolonizing your life in general, as well as education. Yeah. How did that kind of journey unfold? Um, was there like one thing that catalyzed it or was it a very gradual process? Which bit of the journey? There are quite a few things that you've just yeah. mentioned there. <laughs> there are, aren't there? I'm wondering, um, I guess I guess my question is around, like, you had children and did you always know that they weren't going to school? Were you already kind of in touch with children's rights um, and understanding decolonization at that point? Or was it later on? I'm, I'm, I guess because for me, the real catalyst was having children. Um, oh, that, that's the case for so many of us, isn't things. it? Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. Having children is just such a profoundly transformative experience. I don't want to say that in the sense of because some people like to say that, oh, you can't fully experience life unless you become a parent, which is just not true. Mm. Because there, there are lots of different pathways into these things. But because it is, I guess, because it's hard in a lot of ways, it does kind of speed up the process for those who experience it anyway. Um, although there are other other big things that can can bring us into that. Yeah, for, for me, it was, it definitely was, um, I had always known that I was going to home educate, actually, because I hated school myself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, and I had the fortune, which a lot of people don't have, of knowing people who were home educated when I was growing up and envying them. And also because we, I, well, as I didn't grow up here, I guess the rules probably would have been different here, but it was quite laid back in terms of whether I went to school or not. So actually, when I was at, for much of secondary school, my my mother actually just allowed me to just not not go if I, mm-hmm. I didn't want to. So I would go for like the bare minimum and then just not not go for quite quite a lot of it. So I guess that would probably be well, it would probably be considered school refusal here, whereas mm-hmm. it wasn't that kind of an issue there at the time anyway, particularly because I was still able to I happen to have the privilege of being able to make the grades anyway because I test really well and then forget everything I've learned so <laughs> <laughs> so I was able to game the system in in that way which shows that the system doesn't work but mm-hmm. yeah so all of that stuff kind of came together for me and then I had the really strong feeling when I was pregnant that I didn't want this child to I didn't want this child to go to school at least not at first it just felt like for me it was the family togetherness that was important. And I think that's the case for a lot of people is that you start off with kind of a few ideas and it's only as you do it that you start to you start to gain more reasons for why you're doing something. And that that's definitely been the case. I think even now at this point, I would say that my reasons are um, either different or more in number than they, they were a year, even a year ago. Mm-hmm. So, and I, I think that just keeps on happening as we get to know our children as we get to know ourselves and that that's what becoming a parent was for me it was kind of taking a good look at myself and uh, getting to know a lot of things about me that I wouldn't have got to know um what I hadn't got to know yet but in a very kind of quick and intense sort of journey way as they like to call it um yeah and it was really strained as well becoming a parent in a culture that wasn't mine. It was a, a second culture shock in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. Because um, I experienced huge culture shock when I moved here, which actually, it wasn't just culture shock. It was, I, I call it colonial. Um, uh, well, it, it was a sense of, of just feeling that I wasn't, um, I wasn't fully accepted. I didn't fully belong. I was fo- constantly reminded that I was foreign and that foreign, my foreignness was, uh, was somehow worthy of being dismissed so it was a colonial dismissal that I I was experiencing so it wasn't just culture shock and uh, I didn't experience that again when I had when I had my my child but what I had was just feeling like um a really primal all of the things that I would have probably I hadn't even had a chance to think about um all of the things that I would have expected to have um 
I don't know, some, some sort of like memory of what, what you sort of expect when you become a parent, but none of that was there. Um, and it's the whole not having your family with you. And, and I know that it's different here. Families often aren't very involved with each other, but I come from a culture where they are. So mm-hmm. it's a, it, it was a lot of, um, a lot of those things kind of allowed me to, to think with a bit of a blank slate. So it was a gift really, because it was a chance to, to really look at what was important to me. And I think that that kind of informs a lot of my um, perspective when I'm talking about things is that I've been given the opportunity to come at things from kind of a slightly different angle uh, because of having moved, because of, of being kind of um, on the margins in some respects. And people on the margins are always the ones who are able to disrupt because we see things from a different angle. Yeah, absolutely. And that's so it's so powerful to think about um, that in terms of unschooling and the way that we raise our children. Mm. And I know that you, um, if anyone hasn't listened to it, they should definitely go and check out the talk that you did for the Freedom to Learn Forum on decolonizing education. And I'm conscious of not repeating all of it. But um, <laughs> I think what was so what was so fascinating about that is that um, you talk about when families are unschooling, if they're not actively de- decolonizing their practice or their family culture, um, then they're not really, it's kind of not really unschooling and it's not really having that radical impact that as unschoolers, they're often intending to have. Mm, yeah, because unschoolers can feel that we're, we're upsetting the colonial power structure between adults and children, mm-hmm. which is true. And in Indigenous cultures, children are much more at the centre and are much more on an equal playing field. But while we're doing that, if we're not kind of coming alongside our children to gain these tools together, well, to disrupt the culture and, and to think of how to put this, <laughs> to, to, to look at, at, at things together through a, an informed lens, then we're, mm-hmm. not, we're not actually giving our, our children, we're actually doing them a bit of a disservice because we're just saying, go out there and be educated by the dominant culture. And we know that the the dominant culture is not decolonized. The dominant culture is there to just keep perpetuating the same kinds of harms over and over again. And so you're just putting your your child into the world, but not actually, um, you're definitely doing some good by not obviously trying not to oppress them, but, uh, but you're not giving them the tools to think about where they might be oppressing others or where they might be accepting messaging about themselves from others, um, you know, because not all the messaging comes from us, obviously. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so true. And I'm thinking about um, when, because obviously we don't want to be pushing our children to learn a particular thing, but at the same time, if if they're not aware that those resources are available, if they're not aware, for example, that, um, that the dominant culture is a thing, then to them, as you said, I think um, this really great quote where you said, if something appears to be neutral, it aligns with the dominant culture. And when we're, yeah, kind of not preparing our children with those tools and resources to sort of critique things and to look at things from different angles then yeah it is just a perpetuation of of the mainstream dominant yeah sort of and white it's, supremacist a, it's the culture. critiquing it's the critiquing things that's that's a that's such an important skill it's a critical the critical thinking and it's something that we need to develop in ourselves first so it's not mm-hmm. really so much about like we've got to teach our child how to do this thing because that's not what we're aiming for but we do need to be doing we need to see it for ourselves and for a lot of us we don't see it because we're kind of we have fallen asleep with this culture, and we have to wake up to what's happening. Mm-hmm. And and so we need to educate ourselves. We need to be thinking deeply. We need to feel deeply and allow things to go to to come not just into our minds but into our our feelings and our bodies. And then from there, be able to uh, we will notice things and we'll be able to model this kind of critical thinking and uh, and not just a case of like just being negative and pulling apart everything but modeling <laughs> love <laughs> you know and um and generous thinking and and all of all of that stuff um it's really yeah. interesting to me that my so i i bought these um well actually i was given these nancy drew books by a friend years and years ago and i just thought oh, i'll just hang on to them because my kids might like it. I sort of vaguely remember reading some Nancy Drew as a child. And my nine-year-old is now of the age where she's reading them. 
And she said she's going to read them because we're in a pandemic and she can't get through, she can't get to the library and her reading material is a little bit thin on the ground. But she said, but after I read them, I think you should get rid of them. (laughs) So I said, well, why? And she said, because it is so sexist and racist. So, oh, okay. So then we were talking about what were the things that came up and she was talking about um she was talking about first nations people and the the gender roles and the all of that stuff that's going on and uh, and i just thought yeah that's really interesting that uh you know because i don't remember because i read them as a child and because that kind of modeling wasn't happening that's no like that's not something that I'm levying at my parents at all. It's just the way that the, the culture was and we are becoming more awake to things. Um, I'm sure that if I read it now, I probably would be quite shocked. But I'm thankful for the fact that we have enough of these conversations and she kind of sees my decision-making process around things enough and um, and she's making decisions for herself so that um, she knows what she she knows that she feels able to read this because sometimes she decides she's not going to read something, but she knows that she feels able to read this and notice those things and critique them. But she also is able to say, but that's not a reason that we should keep it hanging around because there's plenty else out there and you'll have time to buy and replace it with other things when the time comes for my sisters to read them. So It's so great. Like it gives me goosebumps thinking that there are children who are essentially um I guess like I I was more aware or potentially I guess yeah I was more critical of the world as a child and teenager than Mm -hmm. I was in my sort of early 20s um and it's so great to hear that there are people growing up with that and that that's encouraged in a family and you know it's the culture that's been set and there's discussion ongoing rather than it being stifled or you know something we shouldn't talk about I'm thinking about my nine-year-old who um sometimes we talk for example quite a bit about pronouns and gender and stuff and sometimes I'll say oh you know that that man over there and she'll correct me and say well you Mm. don't know if they identify as a man and I'm (laughs) like yeah actually that's so true I don't um (laughs) and you know I'm I'm non-binary myself but we Mm. do make those assumptions or kind of still have those dominant things that pop up um from time to time and it's so great when your children are like hold on a second or yeah they're, they're not living in that paradigm um, and in the same that way just, that you're having to remove yourself from yeah I mean doesn't that just show just how internalized these things are though that you know even if it's something that we are actively um we are actively having to confront because of our own identities we're still prone to accepting what the dominant culture says without kind of it's programming that you know it's and it's a yeah. constant thing that we are having to work out because we've gone through a life of this pro- lifetime of this programming but uh but they're developing these sk- skills early on and hopefully they won't have the same issues later on I'm kind of intrigued yeah. by why you're saying that like you think your early 20s is a time where you kind of um you were more critical but then your early 20s you sort of softened with those things a little yeah. bit yeah yeah, I think what I realized um, as my kind of relationship with my body, um, well, from from sort of 10, I had a very bad relationship with my body. I was very passionate about kind of political causes and, um, you know, would um, write lots of letters and stuff as a child. But as I grew up, I think that I my focus shifted because that wasn't seen as like an attractive or an acceptable quality to be right. outspoken or passionate about things. And I kind of moved away from that thinking like, yeah, I, I guess I just didn't think that that was acceptable. Obviously, I knew that it was if you were a certain kind of person, but I didn't feel like I was that kind of person. Mm-hmm. Um, it's all very like messed up, I think, in misogyny, in sort of um, internalized homophobia and yeah. Um, yeah, other other stuff. So I think, yeah, it wasn't until having children that I really was like, holy shit, <laughs> I need to I need to do something like this isn't yeah, that there's more that, or there needs to be more than this, I guess. Um, I think that that showed in all different areas of my life, like in terms of the work I did, again, I just thought, you know, I couldn't do the things I wanted to do because, um, of who I, who I was or how I looked. So it's all just, yeah, really not, not good. And I think the thought of children growing up, not having that, and it's not to say that they won't, you know, encounter other trauma and other kind of, um, difficulties but I guess starting from that solid foundation where they're um, able to express themselves and able to engage in social justice 
in a way that is like encouraged by the people around them and actually mm. something that is just a norm rather than you know oh you're the the strange outspoken person um yeah. Yeah, I just think it's really exciting. And I really, I'm intrigued by um, when you talk about living regeneratively and and what that means across different um, parts of your life. So not just farming, for example, it would be so great to hear about what that means to you in in different ways. Yeah. And before I I, I talk about that, though, um, I, Mm. from just listening to what you're just saying, I think the interesting thing for me about parenting at this point in parenting is that it's so it's not so much, well, it is about the, the kids, but it is so much about kind of trying to understand what's happened for me and kind of, you know, when mm. I'm talking about unschooling and so on, it's it's kind of equally or maybe more biased towards thinking of trying to, to figure out how I got to this point um, yeah. and to, you know, to, to sort of work out what needs to be worked on, what needs to be sat with and what needs to be released, all of that stuff so true I almost don't want to move away from that because I think yes <laughs> it's so so true and there's there's that process of going through um sort of de-schooling ourselves and then actually what does it look like to follow my own interests and mm-hmm. to allow myself to um not need qualifications to be bestowed upon me by an institution like yes, actually absolutely. to seek learning and like try things out and if they don't work then try something else um yeah I always thought that I had to wait for someone to come and give me permission to do a thing mm-hmm. um and I guess that's such a thing in like dominant work culture as well. You know, you get promoted or you um, get given an opportunity rather than you actually being able to create something for yourself and express your creativity in a way that feels good. This is something that I was talking to somebody about recently, actually saying that because I, mm. I was on the pathway to do a PhD. That was that that was the dead set plan. And then I had a bit of a mental breakdown, well, a bit of a mental breakdown. I did have a, a, a breakdown of, of uh, not a total breakdown, but because I was able to get through my master's, but enough that mm-hmm. I needed to take some time out from from academia because I was definitely um, being harmed by continuing as I was. And mm. the intention was, okay, I'll take some years out and then I'll I'll go back to it and I'll have a clearer picture of what it's going to look like and what I want to do with it. And then I had had kids and it just seemed like, okay, well, that's just that's just not going to be possible and uh, and I beat myself up about that for quite a long time because like mm. oh, I have this really useless really niche masters and it's not good for anything and it was a waste wow. of money and all of that stuff and I've kind of realized as time has gone by it's not just that I can't go back to doing a PhD because of all the various time constraints of my life right now but I don't actually want to because I and I think that was part of the reason why I needed to take a break was that I needed to figure out that actually I didn't that's so I'm just dropping things so I'm moving my arms around as Caribbean people speak we speak a lot with our hands <laughs> so I'm actually knocking things off my desk now no problem <laughs> but yeah so and, and also because I'm not somebody who I don't think I'm ever going to be a specialist I'm, I'm somebody who just likes I'm very interested in lots of different things and and mm-hmm. um, and my, my brain really values novelty so <laughs> so it's, it's not so great if you're trying to focus and do a PhD and it was one of yeah. the problems with my master's as well is that I, I really found it difficult trying to focus on just this one thing so what what I realized was actually I don't need an institution to tell me that um, I'm an expert and actually the whole there's a problem around that idea of expert mm-hmm. and authority and, you know, all of that stuff. It, where, wherever I have a platform and an ability to speak, um, there, there are lots of people who don't have any platforms who can give justice, offer just as much wisdom. And I think I value wisdom a lot more than I value knowledge. Whereas before, mm-hmm. I would say when I was in the academic, you know, when I was in that, that path, um, on that path, I don't think that was the case. I think I, I very much valued knowledge more than wisdom, which is part of this whole structure with um, not just in terms of the education system, but in terms of the capitalist system that, um, that you know, we're looking for, we're looking for wisdom, for, for, no, we're looking for experts, but we're not looking for seers, you know, so... Mm-hmm. yeah and there's a we're not looking for the 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 people who know things in in their bones I was having a conversation with somebody about this on the internet last night actually where we're just trying to understand each other's point of view and I, I think we were just 
sort of slightly missing each other a little bit um, because they were sort of talking about the that you need to you need to to do the work and, and read the books to be able to do the thing. And I was saying that's one way of doing the thing. It's mm. not going to be everybody's way of doing the thing. And it's actually slightly ableist because not everybody can read the books. And um, and actually there are different ways of, of knowing things. Sometimes we do, um, some people are more able to access knowledge by um, by just listening in to, to themselves and, and working out what's right for them that way or by talking to other people and so finding knowledge in community. So yeah, there's there's all of that stuff. Anyway, I'm kind of go, going back to what I was saying about the no. PhD though, is that I then yeah. had a conversation with a friend who um, has a PhD and is a university lecturer. And we were talking about, well, for a start, apparently she opened my eyes to a lot of, of actual um, job options, which are available to me with my master's, which was never offered to me when I was at um, yeah. at the university. It was kind of like, you're either doing a PhD or we have nothing to say to you, which um, which I think is, is I'm so angry about mm. now. I'm really still processing that. But but also we are talking about like all of the different, all of the different possibilities. And one of the things I found myself saying, oh, is that you don't need to be an academic because anybody can be a public academic now with the internet. But what I didn't, what I went went away and thought about that. And I thought actually, but that's still um, what gives people the authority in um, mm-hmm. in sort of the public sense when you think of somebody being a. a a public academic, which is a, a term a lot of people are using now, is that they're given authority by the number of followers they have. And that's also problematic as well. It's, it's like mm-hmm. we, we, we're still trying to figure out what does it look like to listen to each other or to value what we have to say ourselves um, outside of, of this, um, outside of capitalism. <laughs> and it's a, a very, yeah. very complicated thing because we don't know what it looks like and all of that has to do with the fact that like we've lost we've lost community and and so we don't have these pathways to listen to each other and share wisdom and and all of that links in with regenerative regenerative culture which we can start talking Mm -hmm. about now if you like yeah I I just have yeah so like I've nodded a lot (laughs) through what you've been saying just yeah and and thinking about that um Gosh, yeah, like thinking about the um, in academia, for example, or being an expert. Um, I have a business coach, for example, who has never actually done coaching qualification, mm. and um, I would never have considered working with them before because I would have just thought, you know, they don't have a qualification. And yeah. actually, they're incredible, and they're going to be on another episode. And and they're just they're an anti capitalist business coach, and the way they talk about things and not having that lens or like all of that kind of crap that has been passed on by someone who's a supposed expert is it's really liberating and I think um yeah there's so much snobbery around uh, well where did you a- acquire this knowledge from and mm-hmm. who gave it to you um yeah and, and how you come across in sharing that and actually we're so disconnected from any kind of um ancestral knowledge well I I am I'm not saying everyone is um but in sort of white supremacist culture, people are often so disconnected from their ancestry that there isn't any other knowledge to seek apart from in books. Or, yeah, it's just, I guess it's been made like the only the only knowledge that we can seek or could seek historically was um, in libraries, r- things written by white, straight, rich men. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, it's just hugely, hugely problematic as well, because there are whole cultures that are left outside of that because things were yeah. not written down. And th- mm-hmm. there is still a, um, like, I, I keep trying to find folk tales, Caribbean folk tales for my children. Cool. I can't find yeah. any of the ones that I grew up with or any of the ones that I, I consider to be like, the like the really, really gripping, amazing ones. And I realize it's because they've not been written down. They have yeah. just been repeated. And so the only thing that I can do is is actually tell them, you know, mm-hmm. to to my my children. And I'm very fortunate that I have that link. Um, I think if I hadn't grown up here, I mean I don't know. It depends it depends on on like everybody's family situation is different. But I'm very grateful that I did have access to that. Um, mm-hmm. although unfortunately my, my children find my stories too scary well I think it's probably because they've they because they're growing up in a culture that is so different 
Um, mm. And so, so their measure even for what is kind of um, what is comfortable is different as well, which is fine. We're just kind of learning. Like I'm, I'm learning what it means for, I'm learning from them what it means to grow up food culture, which is not something that I have an experience of. So that's a, and that's fascinating in its own way. I mean, there's a lot of stuff in there about like what really makes a human, you know? So mm. yeah. And, and I feel like actually what you're saying about the, you, somebody needs to have had qualifications or, or whatever. I do that a lot where I go into situations that even this is despite the fact that actually I have a postgraduate degree, but it's in a, an incredibly, incredibly niche thing. Uh, and um, it's it's early modern literature and culture. But my main focus was on the um, the 17th century uh, British translation of the Quran. <laughs> so it's, okay. it's not any, it's not anything that I'm ever going to use in. Well, apart from sort of um, conversation, it's not anything that I, I use in, in my day to day life. But um despite having a kind of a postgraduate degree, I often feel unqualified for things. So like, even when I was coming mm-hmm. to, into this conversation, I was thinking that I don't really feel like I have a little bit, it's the imposter syndrome that people talk about. Um, so I, I, I don't really feel like I'm qualified to talk about anything because I'm not, um, because I, most of my experience comes from day-to-day living and reflecting on day-to-day living as opposed to like going off and doing a ton of research and getting kind of the external validation from uh, from other people and I was really thinking about that about like the fact that I that just presents that I need to it just shows me that I have more work to do on um, validation and working out because it's never going to be enough external validation (laughs) basically it's one of those things yeah and I relate so much to what you're saying sorry to interrupt Mm, no it's fine um, I was just going to say, like, that's so interesting to me that you, prior to the conversation, would feel like, what could you, you know, what could you talk about or that your knowledge isn't in some way, I don't know what, like ratified or like, okay, by, by some expert. I think to me that that lived experience is what's so interesting. And that's what I think I, I learn. I don't know about you, but I feel like I learn so much more from hearing people's stories and their experiences of actual yeah. life than like a theory or, mm. um, you know, that's why that's why textbooks can be so dry because they're just talking about something in isolation. Whereas if you were to read the same kind of themes, but about someone's actual life, it's so much more powerful. Yeah, I think there's so much to talk about. And yeah, I feel like this could be a very long episode. <laughs> <laughs> well, I realized recently that conversation is the way that I learn. Like that that I, I learn a lot of a lot of ways. I do read a lot. I did went go through a long period of time where I genuinely couldn't read a book. Um, which mm-hmm. is why I feel quite strongly that we need to normalize gaining knowledge in other ways and, and validate that as as a, another way because you don't have to be somebody who reads who reads a lot and a lot of us carry a lot of shame around that because reading is kind yeah. of held up as being this um you know it's, it's it's a more more worthy activity than a lot of other activities forgetting that for a lot of history uh, for quite a significant portion when the book emerged like there were a lot of concerns around that as a um that as well so you know it, it swings around about with these with these things but I couldn't read for a, a long time and recently I'd say like in the last few years really I've started being able to read a lot again because I was always a reader mm-hmm. prior and it was a kind of a brain fog thing I genuinely couldn't understand what I was reading before and finally I, I got to a point where I was able to read and finish a book again and and actually comprehend what I was reading and um what I found it's was that actually yes I was learning new things from books which was brilliant and really exciting I love learning new things but a lot of things that I was reading were actually confirming things that I had learned through conversation or experience Mm -hmm. or just observation you know just living with my my children I, I learn a lot through them I think partly because it goes back to that thing of every stage your child is at it sort of gives you a, a portal back to when you were that age as well and you have things yeah. that you need to deal with there and so it's an incredibly rich learning ground so I'd find that these books were kind of um telling me things that that actually I had I had come across before through those things and and what it's meant for me is kind of saying that actually I can validate that I can validate the 
lived experience the, that that is a form of, of um I don't want to say research because I still feel that that kind of plays into that whole idea that knowledge is what knowledge is the most important thing but it's been a kind of a more organic way of um of gaining uh, wisdom and it doesn't mean that reading isn't a good thing and I think that reading for a lot of people can help to jump start things especially as we are a society that lives in the mind and says that mm-hmm. that um that mind knowledge is the most important thing and um, we cut ourselves off from the other our other centers as a result um so sometimes we do because of that or, or because of our personalities some people just do access things with the mind first and um, we do need to to maybe read something and then allow it to drift into the other the other parts of us but it, it there is a problem with saying that it all needs to be there and that we can't mm-hmm. um, we can't find these ideas and, and uh, we can't learn, we can't grow, we can't become full people through any other any other way. Just popping in with an episodely reminder to take a few deep breaths and to have a drink of water. And whilst you have a few deep breaths, perhaps you might like to notice what's around you. It may be what's in the room or what's outside, wherever you are. Just take a look at what you can see. And what can you hear? What could you touch? Are there any textures around that you might like to feel? Is there anything you can smell? And perhaps anything you can sense? Just checking in with your body. Do you get a felt sense of anything in particular? And then perhaps bringing your attention to your feet, just noticing your feet on the floor, perhaps they're curled up underneath you, maybe in your bed, wherever they are. I find it really helpful just to pause sometimes and to notice things as a way to bring me back into the present because I have a tendency to live very much in my mind. Um, So if this is helpful to you, then it's maybe something you might like to try as well. And while you do that, just to let you know, I currently have a waiting list operating for people who would like to work with me. If you think that you might be interested in working together, then head to my website, gemkennedy.com, where you will find everything you need to know about the practicalities of working together. If you head to the bottom of the self-empowerment coaching page, you'll be able to add your name and email, which will pop you on the list. And I'll be in touch as soon as a space becomes available. And now let me hand you back to the wonderful Adele. Yeah, it makes me think of all the ways that we silo off subjects and you know think about this in a maths way or this in a a physics way or whatever it might be but actually um if we think about life as being like one big thing um with lots of over overlapping sort of intersections and different Mm. experiences then I think it's easier to hold it maybe hold like the multiple complexities that one thing can be true in one subject but can be like the absolute antithesis of truth in another subject um but yeah, how do you hold that if you just believe what is being recorded or what what you're reading? Um, there's something more about yeah, living through experience and and learning that way. I think. Yeah, so no, that yeah. is regen- regenerative. That that bringing together of every that well, not bringing but that observing that everything is together. That things are mm-hmm. not separate. That um, you know, even big things like thinking about life and death. You know, th- those things are not are not separate from each other. They're part of the same the same strain and and uh, that there's a holistic way of looking at things where we um, we are able to 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 know things in, in all of our, our centers um yeah i'm just thinking about mind body heart in you know in kind of a figurative sense there but uh yeah the the fact that we do separate the separate these things is a uh, is it's very colonial <laughs> for a start mm-hmm. um it's very capitalist as well and it just makes it really easy it's kind of we need to simplify things because we need that that's the easiest way to understand things and then figure out how it's useful for us so that we can then move on um you know rather than sitting with that com- complexity it, this goes into a lot of lots of things i'm thinking in terms of the farm that um we've been saying for ages and we need to change this this is a, a phrase that that uh, um, my partner came up with we've been working in this walled garden that, that this guy has allowed us to use and uh, we're bringing the walled garden back to life. And he works in marketing. So it's, he has found a phrase that a lot of people 
really like, but it always bothered me and I couldn't work out why. And it's only recently when I've started thinking more and more about regenerative agriculture and uh, and the ideas around life and death, that actually what it is, is it's actually disrespectful to that space, saying that it was dead because it never was dead. Mm-hmm. It's just that um, humans weren't getting what they wanted to get out of it. So we weren't bringing it back to life. We, what we should be doing is trying to find ways to partner with it um, and yeah. see the, you know, see the land that way and see ourselves that way as well. Um, so that's something that we're kind of having a lot of conversations around at the moment about uh, because it affects the culture of of the farm. It's it's quite a new thing. The farm's only been going for two years, and we're we're massively growing at the moment. And so we have to really think about how the wider culture of the th- this thing is going to look. And um, and that's one of the ways is kind of thinking about how are we existing in this space? How do we see the people in this space as well? Do we really see this dramatic separation between nature and us? Is that playing mm-hmm. out in the language that we're using? Is that playing out in the decisions that we're making about how we spend money, about how we treat other people? about um, how we look at because we do a lot of um, a lot of feeding people who um, who are experiencing food poverty does that affect the way that we're, we're seeing them you know um, th- are we seeing ourselves as serving them or are we seeing ourselves as partnering with, partnering with them you know is it solidarity or is it um, something that is actually just there as a marketing a marketing mm. type thing there's a lot of things to think about that do come out of this, these little, these little things that, you know, this little phrase that just seems like quite harmless and actually just quite kind of fun. Like lots of people said, oh, they love that idea of like, we're bringing this walled garden back to life. And it just always is something in me. You just feel like my stomach would just be in kind of knots about it. Like something just doesn't feel right. And that's the thing as well, is that, you know, the, the, I sort of needed to read more so that my head could confirm what actually my body already knew <laughs> that something wasn't yeah. right about this phrase. Yeah, and it almost sounds, I guess it sounds colonial in a way, like yeah. going into a place and, and, you know, making it proper and, you know, whatever. Um, what's the word? I guess, yeah, like um, taming it or all those kinds of colonial like ideals of like why... Um, why it's okay to go into a different country and completely change and decimate the culture that exists there already. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it, it's so fascinating. And I wonder the, um, I mean, I'm sure there's loads, but what mm-hmm. kind of links have you noticed uh, coming up the more that you, the more you work in farming and the more you learn about nature, I guess. And this is my, this is probably my um, idea of what it would be like because I don't have a farm um but what kind of synergies or links have you noticed between uh, nature and the way that you work with nature and also with uh, things like social justice and um yeah I guess I, it sounds like a big question I don't know if that makes any sense <laughs> <laughs> it is a big question but also because we're doing so many different things with the farm as well so my role in the mm-hmm. farm is I do some of the growing but my main role is community engagement so I'm very much thinking about the people side of things in terms of the people who we bring onto the farm to do um, volunteering and how we're making links with people who we're who we're supplying um, people who are not are not paying because of our sliding scale which funds boxes for them and trying to work out beyond that what we're what we're doing because we're eventually going to be running events and and so on so I am very much thinking always about how how people and the the land come together possibly in a different way to how the people who their main job is growing are, are thinking about it so my role is is kind of also to help them to to think about what they're they're doing in a more conscious way as well, just to have those conversations so that we kind of understand each other and learning where everybody is when they're they're doing this as well. Um, sorry, I've lost my train of thought. What what were you asking? I didn't ask a very good question. That's why <laughs> I just sort of I just sort of said some words at you. Sorry. Um, <laughs> so my question, I guess, in a more succinct way, was like, what synergies have you noticed between nature or farming and activism and social justice? Okay. Right. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I think one of the things that 
going back to this thing about how the land is not something that we're doing something to, it's a biodiverse system that we are that we're entering to participate in. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's a we're we're there to to be a part of it and to work out what that looks like. Obviously, we need to make money because that's just the way that that it is, but we want to do so much more than that. And there are lots of little decisions, like lots of corners that we could cut with that to um get somewhere faster and say that, well, that's okay because, you know, we um we need to make make money or it does it doesn't completely go against these principles and we really try not to do that and I feel like the way that that links to the social justice stuff and the activism is that we can do that we can we can cut corners we can look for how we can get somewhere faster because a lot of the rules of no dig um it does require patience it does require just waiting and sometimes um you worry that the predators for your pests won't come fast enough and sometimes they don't come fast enough for your timeline and in the same way with the with social justice and activism you know we want to see something happen right away you know with all of the stuff that's been going on with black lives matter this um this year 2020 i don't know when you're gonna put out this episode but um this past year that we've had it you the reaction for a lot of people who were coming who were waking up to the issues around racial injustice for the first time or possibly just in a more urgent way for the first time. They wanted to see change right now. And I think they sort of felt like if I just do this thing, then we're going to see systems fall and it's all going to... But coming at it with a very kind of very um, simplistic picture of what that looks like and then being really shocked when people were saying things like, oh, we've got to defund the police and you know, all of these things. Oh, but that's going that's going too far. And in oh mm-hmm. no, we can't get rid of capitalism and, and all of these, you know, all of these different things. Whereas people who have been in this space for a long time, you know, we're saying that we recognize that these are very complex ideas and you do need to sustain your energy <laughs> to be able to go through them. And a lot of it is that it's going to be a case of um it's a slow journey it's not something that we're necessarily going to see in our lifetime like when i think about decolonization i think about it as i'm healing the generations that have gone before me but i'm also thinking about the generations after me and i don't see it like i see i, I i'm i'm at one point in this long long history of decolonization and i don't know when it's going to happen i'm sure that my children growing up in the culture that they're in and in the imperfect understanding of decolonization that I have, they're going to be growing up with some features of colonialism. And it, and hopefully they will be able to, well, I know that they'll be able to do more of the work so that the next generation is going to be further along. And, you know, it's, it's kind of recognizing that we don't just um, hit a button and the light goes on, <laughs> you know, but that yeah. actually is more like waiting for, the wasps to come and it's sometimes not having an answer as well like we've had so many things happen this year where we've just been like uh what so what do you really do about this and the answer is you can't really do anything about it and some things just do are destined to to return to the land through the compost heap and and that's something that you've got to make your your peace with as well so there are lots of things that you can um there are lots of things that you can draw out of that as well yeah. Yeah. I can imagine there's so much learning if you're doing that kind of being involved in that on a day-to-day basis. I'm, I'm trying to work my way through a permaculture course on online at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can, it's kind of a, a social justice lensed course, which is really interesting. Oh. Um, yeah, I'll send you the link in case you've not seen it before. Not that you need it, but I mean, if in case yeah. you wanted to share no, it. No, I'd be else. really interested because um, a huge, a lot of permaculture is problematic because, um, because it's, mm. well, it's essentially white, cis white guys taking African and indigenous ideas of, and ideas from yeah. just all over the world, India and so on. And, uh, and then just repackaging it in a, in a very neat and tidy way. So yeah, it is problematic. Yeah. Yeah. This is interesting in that it, it deconstructs the the stuff that's been presented by white dudes as like, this is the way that they've come up with to do the things. Um, and it thinks about how you draw it into community and other things as well. Um, yes. And I guess that brings me to like, I'm conscious of time. So okay. it brings me maybe to um, 
Oh, I feel like I've got two questions. One of them, oh, I, I feel like maybe you'll have to come back, Adele. <laughs> really because good that you're conscious um, of time because I just forget these things. I've just looked at the time and I'm like, oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't want you to just suddenly realise like three hours later that I've kept you asking oh, all kinds of things. That is story of my life though. Like, yeah, oh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, time, I'm time blind. I'm completely time blind. It's something that my, yeah, it's something my family finds really, really funny. Like I was saying to them the other day about like, I don't get how somebody can, it can be dark really early. Like from the time it goes dark at four, I think, oh, it's really late. And nobody else in my family gets this. And I I just, I assume, yeah, I'm glad that you get this because it seems like a perfectly normal thing to me. But then anything you experience is normal, isn't it? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I'm like pajamas on. I'm ready for bed. <laughs> Is it the evening now? Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. Um, okay, so I'll I'll finish with one question, and maybe with the invitation that it would be great if you wanted to come back another time and talk more. Um, so the final question is: I always ask people to share what they're really enjoying at the moment, and I wondered if you had anything that you'd be happy to tell us about. Yeah, so I thought about this because I know that you had mentioned before to think to have a think if there's anything I wanted to share. And uh, I was thinking, oh, I need to need to mention a book or some music or some show or something. But then I realized that actually, no, that's that's kind of counter to where my head is at right now, which is thinking about all of the different spaces that we that we gain wisdom and nourishment and decolonizing that. And I'd say that the thing I'm really enjoying right now is learning to sleep properly. Because it's yeah, it's something that I've really well, I'd say struggled with my whole life, but I don't think I've particularly struggled with it. I've just kind of accepted that I'm a person who just isn't going to sleep very, very much, which there is something freeing about that, just accepting that. But um, but I've recently just realized how much of that is, and it's not just a, a case of not, it's not just a case of, oh, I need to sleep because sleep is self-care, but actually not sleeping is an act of self-harm for me. And it's a, I'm staying awake and finding other things to do because I don't actually want to deal with certain things in my life. Um, And I had a revelation about this the other day because I was up and I was just like, I'm wide awake at a time when I shouldn't be because I have a four-year-old who's going to wake me up before I'm ready to be awake. And um, what should I do about about this? And and actually I thought, well, I'll journal. I'll journal, which I, I often do sort of um at different times of the day I don't tend to do it at night which is for me that is a sign that the staying awake and finding reasons to stay awake is about self-harm because um why wouldn't I journal at that time when I'm all alone and everything is is quiet and my brain is at its most creative so I was then I was then journaling and and um and I realized the thing I wanted to talk about was this kind of long-term rage that I was feeling towards a certain person in my life and a lot of things have come up with them recently and um, and I thought I need to write about this anger and just to to see where it goes and it took like seconds to go from writing about how angry I was feeling to getting right into what was actually underneath which was fear and grief and mm-hmm. not dealing with Satan, not feeling able to feel angry at um, at some other people and situations in my life, and and so then going underneath where that anger was coming from, and and once I'd dumped all of that stuff out, which I don't think I think it was really good to do it at that time when I was struggling to sleep and wanted to be asleep, because once I'd, I'd done all of that, then I just felt so sleepy. <laughs> wow. Yeah, and then I just I. Cool. Yeah, I just went straight, straight to sleep. So I had this amazing sleep and I felt like a superhero the next day until sort of like mid-morning, which is is earlier, early for me to start feeling tired because um, by then I'm usually kind of like properly waking up. And um, and what I realized was actually it was because I'd had more sleep than usual. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> 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 But the thing is, so then from there, I started um, like really, really thinking about like, how am I going to make sure that I get more sleep and actually wrote down. So I have it at the side of my of my bed, this question, are you awake because you're because you're trying to harm yourself? And um, because of valid reasons for being awake, 
But sometimes I realize I'm actually doing things to keep myself awake. I am trying to just um, hold on to myself um, rather than actually release myself. So yeah, it was a huge epiphany that came out of this thing. And it's massively, massively improved, improved my sleep since. And and when I haven't slept, it's, it's, it's helped me to kind of think about, is it because there's something that I need to do? And that's been helpful as well to kind of write down Mm -hmm. the different things that I need to do, which actually aren't to do. I mean, there are practical things like don't go to bed with my phone. (laughs) But, um, but often the things that come out are, I need to have a conversation with somebody where we remember some happy or funny times about this person who I'm feeling really angry with, or, you know, just things that just um, wouldn't, wouldn't emerge otherwise. And I realized that what that is, is that it's a this kind of process is bringing together the different centers to me. It's allowing me to really feel those things that uh, that I have been trying to hold myself back from feeling by staying awake and distracting myself. And it's also allowing me to process through my head because I'm writing and you know the work, that's where the words exist. But my body is informing this by sleeping and by just uh, just generally um allowing me to actually feel not tired but sleepy again because um I got to a point where I just felt like I don't really I don't really feel sleepy I'm either on or off there's not this in between sort of stage yeah. yeah so that that's been a really healing thing for me that feels huge I'm sure there are going to be so many people that can relate to that as well like hearing you say that I got goosebumps because <laughs> um <laughs> yeah I I think I don't know about for you but in terms of um my sleep around parenting, I, I started to take late or have late bedtimes in the hope of like reclaiming a couple of hours of being alone. Yes. Um, oh my gosh. Don't we all do that? <laughs> yeah. And then at some point hearing you say that, I've kind of realized at some point it actually became like a form of self-harm rather than, um, needing the space to be alone and to process things it was just like you're going to stay up late and tomorrow you're going to be really tired because you haven't gone to bed on time and that lack of like feeling sleepy as well I think that definitely having children I'm not blaming my children but going through that process of having children and being awake at all kinds of hours I've definitely come out of of sync with sleeping yeah and I think because this has been a high anxiety year for well all of us and because Mm. it's it's also a time where we don't have as many commitments. We have the ability to look at these things a bit more deeply. I know for me, it's been a case of if I um, getting getting the news or hearing about something that's happened with a member of my family or a friend or something, um, my instant thing would be like, well, I'm not going to be sleeping tonight. You know, I, I'm mm-hmm. just going to have to accept that I'm going to, going to be up. And uh, what am I going to do with with that time? Usually things that actually aren't that helpful for me. This has kind of helped me to think about why that is the case, because obviously it's not an inevitable thing. But mm-hmm. the, the reason why it's become such a habit is because I sort of feel like I see all of this pain out in the world or I'm experiencing all of this pain in myself. And rather than actually find a way to process it that allows me to really enter into it and deal with it, the better thing is to just is to numb myself in a way distracting yourself rather than allowing yourself to to do the things that you need to do mm-hmm. yeah which yeah. I think a lot of us wow. a lot of us are doing so absolutely yeah I definitely yeah wow I'm gonna think on this so much more thank you what a great thing to share and recommend <laughs> <laughs> yeah get more sleep <laughs> yeah <laughs> I think everyone listening would be like yes I, I should definitely do that <laughs> okay what's that well, thing about um, like you grow up and realize that water is the is, water is what it's all about forget all the the other things you thought it was you thought alcohol was where it was at coffee yes. where it's at, water <laughs> is where it's at that's what you learn in your 30s and 40s and so on <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh thank you so much for joining me Adele I've had such a great time it's been really really interesting uh thank you so much for having me I feel like like this conversation has helped me to process and solidify some things and actually it was really interesting hearing you um, pull out that thing from that talk I'd given for freedom to learn because I totally forgot that and I was like oh yeah maybe I do have wisdom Yes, so, most definitely do. <laughs> but we yeah, still need these. Yeah, we need these these um these reminders because, yeah, because of, of just how messed up the world is. Basically, <laughs> telling us that yeah. you know, yeah. don't listen to yourself. You can't. You can't know what's good. 
Totally. And yeah, that imposter syndrome that often comes with it as like an AFAB yeah. person or generally like a non-white cis man person, mm. then it's, yeah, there's always yeah, that and, doubt, and isn't there? For, and for me as well, it's a colonial, it's a thing, but it's colonial disregard as well. It's, you know, it's feeling that mm. I don't have anything to say because I'm a small, I'm from a small island. And this is something that you're speaking to from, from your, from, from your location as well, is that it's a, it's being um it's being socialized to give deference to the person who has authority so and that mm-hmm. is going to be the person who fits into the dominance culture as you know as as normal so yeah there's a it's a lot of stuff that we're constantly having to deconstruct otherwise we're just going to keep perpetuating yeah absolutely thank you so much adele i hope you enjoyed this episode with adele jarrett carr i know that I loved it and I really hope that she can come back soon and record another one with me. It's really grey and rainy here so I think I'm gonna put my pyjamas on (laughs) in honour of my conversation with Adele and get really cosy. Of course you should absolutely go and check out Adele's work and here are some of the ways that you can do that by listening to her Revillaging podcast where she has some really interesting conversations with really insightful guests. Um, I would highly recommend that. It's wherever you get your podcasts usually. You can also find out more by heading to adelejarrettcar.com or following her on Adele JK on Instagram or Adele Jarrett Carr Writer on Facebook. And finally, to find out more about her family farm, you might like to head to soulfarm.co.uk. All that's left to say is I hope you have a good week ahead and thanks again for listening to another episode of Queers & Co. Take care and see you next week. Bye.